to Renaissance Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Christopher Martin Burns, uh, Managing Director of CMB Consulting in the UK. Joined by a very special guest today, um, Ash Martis, CEO and founding partner of Startup Fuel. Welcome, sir. How are you? I am amazing. I am absolute pleasure being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Chris. My pleasure having you, my friend. Um, I, uh, I met Ash um, a few months ago when I, when I moved to Toronto. Um, and you've been incredible with me, very welcoming into the ecosystem here. Um, it's been great getting to know you and starting to do a little bit of work with Startup Fuel. Um, let's do a quick plug for your podcast. Uh, Ash is also the host of a podcast called Startup Legends. Um, so give that a listen. Uh, it's um, What is it focused on, Ash? Uh, we interview VC funds, anybody providing opportunities for startups and entrepreneurs, just to give them an idea, a chance to talk about why they're doing it, who they're looking for, and allows the audience or the entrepreneurs to understand okay do i qualify should i pay attention to this opportunity think of it like a jimmy kimmel but instead of celebrities coming to plug in their movies and trailers it's fund managers vcs venture capitalists accelerators who come in to plug in their opportunities they have in my mind that's much more interesting (laughs) 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 yeah it's part half the reason i started this as well i think there needs to be more content um like this talking about cool new innovation and stuff out there so (laughs) Yeah, give that a listen as well, people. Um, so yeah, let's um, we'll get into a bunch of stuff here, Ash. But let's talk about firstly your your background, like where you came from personally, um, where you grew up, what your ambitions were when you were younger, how you got into the startup world, how you got into venture. Um, walk us through walk us through your story. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a long story, but I'll try to condense it as best as possible. Uh, so yeah, I was um, grew up here in Toronto. Um, been here most of my life before moving to the to the U.S. But um, I, young age, very um, entrepreneurial, went out, especially in high school, and did a lot of extracurricular activities, um, was part of, I think, the biggest influence coming into the startup ecosystem or entrepreneurship was I was working with Free the Children or Me the We, um, helped put on... <clears throat> Uh, global conferences, uh, be able to help raise money to build schools in Africa and do a lot of social impact. And um, Craig Keel and Mark Kielberger, the founders of Free the Children, Me the We, were, went to uh, Schulich uh, school with me. So I got a chance to meet them afterwards as well. Cool. Um, amazing philanthropists, amazing you know, serial entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs. Um, that what kind of got me into the, into the foray of how impactful business could be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I actually was an air cadet. So from the age of 12 to 19, I was a, a military, pre-military air cadet. Uh, went and stayed in military bases. I trained in Trenton, in a cold lake in Alberta. Got a chance to go to the U.S. and stay in seven U.S. bases. Trained with the Marines in North Carolina. I uh, got my pilot's license in the Air Force. Wow. Uh, so I'm a pilot as well. And that, all of that, they, we learn a lot in leadership. We, when you kind of go from that age, you, they teach you how to be a leader. How do you... Um, build lesson plans, teach younger generations, get people. And that really got me out of my shell. I was very shy uh, before that. And then I joined effective speaking competitions and won national awards for effective speaking on on topics. And that is why I'm so good now being able to go in front of crowds and stage. That was the, you know, I recommend anybody to put their kids in Air Cadets, great program or any of the cadets. After that, I got a chance to get into Schulich. I applied and got into Schulich School of Business, uh, one of the top business schools in North America, yeah. the top ones in Canada. First year, a buddy of mine, older brother, started a textbook rental startup uh, sure. called bookfly.ca. Um, following their journey and you know coming in to help them and work with them a little bit uh, was kind of got me into this idea of startups and ecosystem. 
they got uh, acquired their company and in the process of doing that I got to fall in love with venture capital so initially I thought I wanted to do accounting yeah. uh, and I realized very quickly <laughs> I didn't I'm not an accountant but over the next uh, next four years I specialized in entrepreneurship finance and venture capital nice. um, and learned uh, lots and lots of amazing things about how the startup ecosystem is growing mm -hmm. but you know the n most important thing about me is I'm a serial networker Okay, I love networking. When I was at the age of 18 years old, I got a chance to meet Harry Rosen, who uh, is a massive, um, is an entrepreneur in Canada that's built retail empire of uh, suit stores. They have like Hugo Boss and everything. They're big um, malls around, around the country. And he took me under his wing as my mentor, uh, introduced me to a lot of people, explained to me. But the number one thing I learned from him was just keep meeting people and keep being a person that, you know, doesn't just show the value out of what you did in your career and life, but also that personal, like, you know, getting emotionally connected with people. That's going to go way further. So that's uh, kind of what I took to heart. And I spent the next, I'd say, nine, ten years since that time doing about two networking events a week. So I think I'm sitting at 865 networking events in 35 tech cities around the world. I've gone to all the different major tech cities for conferences and events. Yeah. I have a personal network. I've met about 45,000 people around the planet, all in this space, yeah. studying, learning. I'm just very passionate about this ecosystem. And the passion comes from one spot. I see the power of entrepreneurship to create freedom in people's lives. And I think a lot of the education around how to do it is closed and not accessible. So content like what we're doing here and in general, bringing that entrepreneurship and that learning to everybody empowers ecosystems to reduce wealth inequalities and gaps. And this is a huge part of my passion and my mission in this on this earth, right? So that's how I kind of got into this um, space. And I got a chance to move down to Los Angeles in uh, 2013 uh, with a friend of mine and uh, ended up meeting a ton of fantastic, investors and accelerators and funds out in LA, uh, San Francisco, started to build my networks around there, started to become a due diligence analyst, mm -hmm. started to look at deals with startups. I opened my own consulting firm called Pangea uh, when I was out there in California, specifically helping founders go and raise capital and then investors do due diligence because this is my skill set. One of the things in my career I'm a valuation expert, so I studied valuations, um, went on to work in TD Bank, in IBM, in Procter & Gamble, did a lot of valuation and consulting work, mm -hmm. that all of this converged together to open a consulting firm, yeah. helping my educational background, combined with my experience, all in the startup and VC space, right? So that what led me to travel, and as I was kind of going around learning about what's happening and how the ecosystem is growing, mm -hmm. I got to meet a really fantastic gentleman by the name of Jonathan Baer mm -hmm. um, in San Francisco, who seven-time fund manager, been around for a very long time, wrote a book called Decoding Silicon Valley, and I, I wish I brought it here today, but it mapped out the whole genesis of how everything we are doing in startups today, all our phones, our apps, our Facebooks, our Instagrams, all originated from this one time in history, or I wouldn't say this happening all over the world, but it really catalyzed it. It was one of the deans in Stanford um, invested in two of the, his PhD students creating uh, at the demo day, um, in, I believe it was the 1960s or 1970s. From that, everything expanded. Those, those companies ended up selling, making money, starting Xerox, and a lot of crazy things. So he explained to me how the what an, a startup ecosystem actually is, the combination of all the different players. And we'll talk more about it later on in, in the episode. But specifically learning that aspect, I got to see how other countries are just starting 
to their ecosystem starting to bloom. And it just, there's net zero. Even now, even today, there's some countries who are calling me and saying, we're just starting our ecosystem from day one, yeah. right? So it's a movement that still hasn't hit and it's growing very fast. I fell in love with it and I realized we needed more ed- experts in this space, right? More people, because yeah. there's a lot of turnover. People come in and out of this ecosystem. Yeah. And so I said, let me dedicate my life to this. This is something I can feel I have innovation and passion. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this was a great segue into building Startup Fuel. And the reason we went from a consulting firm into a tech company is because we noticed a lot of, call it subjective and unethical practices mm-hmm. in venture capital yeah. that we thought technology, data, and AI can help alleviate and also create a more equal playing field for everybody, yeah. right? Uh, this is one stat that I found in 2016, sorry, 2015, that of all the funding that's happening globally, underrepresented founders only had access to about 4.6% of that. What means underrepresented is uh, women, minorities, LGBTQ, uh, veterans, youth, um, everybody, uh, a lot of people, a segment of the population didn't have access to capital, weren't getting funded. And I wanted to figure out why, like every human out there has an innovation that could be something awesome. Why is this, why is only 4.6%? And the first question I was asking all the investors is, what are you doing? Why aren't you investing in these people? The first answer was, there's not enough of them. There's not that, mu- that many people in these underrepresented categories in tech. And I said, I respectfully disagree. Yeah. I'm a person yeah. who's traveled. I have 40,000 connections. In fact, if I look at all the connections, all my business cards, 60% of the market is underrepresented. Yeah. So how is that disparity happening? So I went deeper, dug behind the scenes, and I said, all right, I'm giving you an, an, a plethora of candidates that all fit this. What's, what's your next excuse, per se? <laughs> and, and the next biggest thing that came out of it was experience. Like, yeah. oh, we invest in previously exited founders. We invest in these. So I'm saying, aren't you creating a vicious loop or cycle where only the same people who got money yeah. before are getting money in the future may not deserve it or may, may deserve it? And maybe there's a better way to look at these companies. Maybe there's a, a way we can get out of our subjective bias and bring in more data and information to do this. And I understand that venture capital is a very new industry. It's only been around for 30, 40 years. And in that time, it's only peaked in the last 10. So a lot of people were making assumptions on how do we do this stuff? It's very tough. So I came in to say, what if we designed an S&P and Moody's or an Equifax for the venture capital space globally yeah. where a third party neutral agency can provide unbiased, affordable due diligence and valuations and reviews on behalf of great investors who want to find good companies but don't really understand the nitty gritty of the whole ecosystem. So um, understanding how S&P and Moody's performs and functions in the public markets, I said we need one in the private and that's what I set out to, to start with at least the startup sector. You have all all these other sectors in M&A and everything, but specifically in startups, it's the highest subjectivity and the least amount of history and data. That's the toughest thing to solve, and that's the one I wanted to solve, which is what Startup Fuel is. Excellent. And how, like, yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, often it's like there's there's very little logical metrics that are used when, when investments happen, like through through venture funds. Some of them are really good, but most of them... You just it just doesn't make any sense. Like your the head. place that they make is just mm. so yeah. Uh, it's a great objective, and as as soon as I met you, um, it's like it kind of made everything that I've ever done make sense. Like I've been working with startups for kind of 10, 12 years, and I've succeeded, failed, failed, succeeded. Like, but it's difficult to operate within the ecosystem. It's largely relationship based, which is you know, which is what it is. That's great, but 
there are, there's so little predictability about how people invest. You can only do it to a certain extent, especially when you're dealing with funds who are essentially a, a middleman between between the actual backer and and the startups. Mm-hmm. And I I really admired immediately what your goal was um, and kind of a lot of the, the information and data and things that I've seen and been building for a long time. Um, you've kind of been looking at the same stuff and like trying to actually make sense of that and take it to another level. So in regards to the data itself, like how are you, I know you work with a lot of different partners, like how are you building that? How are you making that kind of usable, if you like, within within your platform? And also like what kind of reception have you had from investors um, in regards to in regards to this? Has it been pushback or has it been positive? What have you seen? Yeah, so like I think one of the um, great things we did is that same that same gentleman I talked about, Jonathan Bear, right? One of the investments he was a part of was LinkedIn. Right. Okay. So he explained to me, he's like, we took LinkedIn and grew that company, or we uh, we expect. He's like, I'll explain to you exactly how we built LinkedIn, and we need an entrepreneurial LinkedIn. Like you know, we've got Facebook for the everyday, we've got LinkedIn for career. We need something to help entrepreneurs who have businesses. Not, I mean, starting off with tech because that's my specialty, but one day any entrepreneur that can come on and have a a place to find home as a regular place to see information, news, things like that. So he suggested it's going to take time to build an, a smart data engine to do this, but you need to collect information, you need proprietary, you need external stuff. So why don't you launch your own social network? Um, that instead, like what we did on LinkedIn is on day one, it was a glorified job board. Yeah. You just come in, upload a PDF of your resume, and it will have other job op- applications and people you can connect to there. Yeah. Over time, we came to realize that instead of a PDF, let's turn it into a profile. So it's real time, it's updatable, so everyone's resume and history and career can change dynamically. But more importantly, today we have technology to scrape those PDFs. Back then, they didn't. But the benefit of putting it on a, on a web page is you have every keyword separated, so you could build algorithms or matching systems back to match investors, and programs to these com- to the, sorry uh, jobs and stuff to these uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. So we did the exact same thing. Yeah. We decided to build a platform where instead of a resume as a profile, it's a pitch deck yeah. as a profile. We call it a pitch profile. Upload it, dynamic update. You don't need a you don't need design experience or anything like that. You can keep it in there. But we use that information to connect and create a directory of jobs. And so you create a directory of opportunities like jobs on LinkedIn. Yeah funding, accelerators, uh, angel networks, started ranking and mapping them based on who they want to invest in, what business models, what countries, what locations. And that allowed us to start to populate a database of companies who self came on and uploaded the information to connect to these programs, right? This was the kind of a little bit of the genius because how do you incentivize small business owners around the world to give you information that will one day benefit them, but initially you have to collect it to be able to build an AI to help them. And so, we said we're not unlike a lot of platforms like Crunchbase and Pitchbook and all that. They scrape and they um, populate their data externally, but it's always late and it's always incorrect. We could just in, in empower the founders to keep their data in a place we protect them, and we had the whole hypothesis that if we call this startup fuel, not venture capital fuel, and we brand it in a way that this is meant to, built by founders for founders to help them, we would give the founders a chance to say like, this platform will protect us, we'll, up, we'll feel free to upload everything into here, and we'll know that to the history of this company's existence, all it's gonna do is try to help us the best way it can. And if we can satisfy that, we will bring people on. That was our message, we launched it, uh, I believe it was July um, or May 2019, uh, we launched the platform, uh, and it was an MVP 
first day 10 companies joined 50 100 uh, now we're sitting at over 3,000 companies from 390 cities around the world. I think we just hit 400 um, that are all submitted their information, all these little places. And they're all trying to find opportunities. They want to find and match the things that they don't want to pay attention to as a business owner on a daily basis and say, hey, something just popped up for you. Mm. That's how we initially grew, collected a lot of data on this side. But then we did what LinkedIn did next. So the um, uh, Jonathan had told us what LinkedIn was, uh, what did next is they opened up a HR CRM to allow managers to say, instead of going to our website, our careers page to go apply, they saw a massive drop off. Apply direct through LinkedIn. Apply directly and they created this button called apply with LinkedIn, right? Yeah. So anyways, they did that, we did the same thing, created a CRM for investors, and that's how uh, our monetization began to help investors to better collect information. In the back, we took all of this data, allowed, uh, created pitch, a pitch competition free version, started giving to pitch comps, so that in high profile investors would come and review that. But nobody's ever thought that data at pitch competitions that judges are giving is valuable. Nobody ever thought that. But actually, that is the subjective data we needed to build an, an automated AI engine to score companies. Yeah. So we're running it for four years, we've collected three, two, over 3,000 individual reviews from top experts on businesses, part of their duty to these programs and accelerators, we looked at all of those things and started to run an engine to automatically score these businesses. So there's a lot of things we did. We, got, we bought data, we did things. We got a big government grant from, from NSERC to go in and hire PhDs and data scientists and buy data from PitchBook and Crunchbase and wrap everything, our own proprietary one, external one, into an engine that we can start to do, build what is a, an equity score. So what Equifax has is a credit score, there is a missing an equity score in the world of small business. And, and I, I would argue at the earlier stages when revenue isn't you know, justified over many, many years or isn't consistent, that the equity part of the business, the intellectual property, the team, is much more highly valuable and indicative to future success than the credit score would be. Right? And that's what we ended up coming together to create is a one scoring rating system for small businesses and innovation companies that can be benchmarked across the world and what other people are doing, but also dynamically be updated as new data is coming in live from the ecosystems. Yeah. Right. So that's how we built it. That's how the data was collected. And now it took us four years to get enough substantial amount of data to start running machine learning engines. And anybody else who's trying to do this or coming up next has to follow our same path process. Not go and scrape like PitchBook and things. Get some of that data, but build proprietary databases yeah. that are trusted from the source itself. Yeah. And how are you, like, are you, have you figured out, like, what kind of metrics you're running within, within the platform to weed out kind of subjective biases and instead focus on, you know, growth potential, economics, founder, profile? And, and are you... I, I'm, I'm kind of a big believer in the theory that you should primarily invest in, in the person rather than necessarily the specific technology they may have at that moment. Um, I think it needs to be a combination of both, but I think if you invest in a good founder, I think eventually they're going to make something happen. Um, do you go into deep in, do you go deep into assessing founders' backgrounds and profiles and potential for success? or like in, a, in, I guess, in like a psychometric way, um, an unbiased psychometric way, or 
how does that work? Is it- 100%. And like, these are, these are very important things. So about 12 years ago in my fourth year of venture capital valuations class, mm-hmm. my term project was to create a new valuation model for startups that made more sense based on the intangibles, but not have blanket statements like what you're saying is like, hey, I'm looking at the founder. Every sector, every industry, and every stage should have a different weighting for each category, yeah. and it should be back-tested. Yeah. So instead of saying that the idea, it, I mean, this was the mistake I believe many investors at the early stage of venture capital, even in Silicon Valley, made mm-hmm. because of lack of information, right, is bet on the jockey, not the horse, this term. Yeah. The problem is, is that this is not an overarching statement for everything, okay? It's, sure. it's a good in- leading indicator, but the thing is, that in some sectors, the team and their background is way more uh, correlated to or indexed to the future success of a business than other sectors. And as you get bigger, as you get from, from a pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, the team has less and less of an inclination and the quantitative data coming out of the business takes over lar- larger part of the weighting of the ratings. So you can imagine, I'm obviously simplifying it as best as I can, but now you make this a robust across 150 different industries, You know. 10, 15 different stages of companies, uh, different business models from B2B to B2C, locations and cities around the world. And now you have a very complex, exact city to company to industry definition and benchmarks of what should be rated and what the weight of that should be to create the best evaluation of the company. That's our intellectual property. It's all around being able to build this. We got lucky and uh, met a PhD professor um, named Dr. Andrew Maxwell, who was the head of York University's Lausanne School of Engineering, um, has written uh, his dissertation in how to eliminate subjective bias in angel investing, and ended up studying um, a lot of investment deals, how well, how successful it became, what were the pitches, what were the things at the early stage, and what were biased uh, characteristics, or call it homework or diligence, that, char- that had no correlation to the success, but other pieces that did have correlation. Mm-hmm. So combining a little bit of that research with another um, MBA student at Chicago Boots University plus Stanford plus my own research I've been doing since, to, since 2013 around this topic, we ended up putting it all together mm-hmm. and this week filed a patent. And the first patent in the world that automatically scores a startup company based on AI. Nobody's done it. Nobody's even thought of doing it. And we have now have all the pieces in place from academic research, theory, data, and back-tested work to to file this. And we're so excited because this now puts us into another layer because no no other group out there has even attempted or has the information to do this at the scale we have, right? So that's that's a big uh, milestone we hit this week. That is a big milestone. Congratulations. Thank you. I did not know that. Yeah. What's the patent office's feedback? Does it look like it's going to go through? So we, we now have um, an X amount of time to go and defend it, uh, pr- provide all our research and everything. So it's, it's going to take some time to go through, but it's hard to determine like what it will go through or what their feedback is, but it's just unique. Because the first thing you do in a patent search is check where around the world somebody else has yeah. filed something similar. We've been scouring and we have yet to find anything that is relevant and even a few things that are kind of similar in due diligence and auditing and stuff kind of miss out some of the most important thing which is how do you do subjective data analysis the financial is a lot easier but the subjective part this has been what i've been struggling with for the last 13 years yeah well i think like i think a lot of people get stuck in their own bubble and i think you're one of the first if not the first people to actually look across the entire ecosystem instead of building a, a, a diligence platform that like works for your specific thesis you're looking across everywhere exactly that's a hell of an undertaking like it's that's tough. it's it, it's not really it's 
it's not really the kind of thing that anyone would necessarily do through reason. You've done it because you love the space and you want to make it better. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, it, I've been here for six years doing this, yeah. you know, and I've been studying this for 13, right? So the thing is that like when people ask, uh, you know, there are some companies that can go raise money in six months, raise another money in another round. There are companies that are a lot easier, have a lot more clearly defined problems and solutions and things like that. And the industry is ready and accepting for that type of innovation. This is not one of those. We are going, and you asked a question, which I wanted to get to is, what is the reception from the ecosystem? Let me tell you, when you're playing in an ecosystem of ego, where a lot of people are very smart, very rich, they know what they're doing, they've got lots of success in the past, they over-index their subjective bias. Okay, and they don't even realize that they're doing it because they think that that's what the experience counts. It's human nature. It's human nature, right? The thing is, we've debunked it. So the thing is that we've not come to understand that some of these biases are actually lowering the rate of return and the potential successful deals that these investors can invest in because they're not seeing the bigger picture, right? And it's hard to, when you're dealing with a company with so many variables and so hard to predict where it's going to go because there's a macroeconomic environment you can't predict, there's a micro that you have to do, how do you combine them together? Initially, the response from many investors, many people were like, we're supposed to do this internally. This is not really something outside, and we don't know who we trust in doing so. That's what it began with, okay? This was me, naive, five years ago, trying to tell people, like, you don't know what you're doing, and I'm trying to help. You know, and, and there's a way to say something, and there's a way to do it, and the way to back yourself to do it. And it took time to learn that. You know, and that's what every for every entrepreneur, if you're getting rejections and no's, take that and learn from it. Yeah. I've Before I got my first investor that said yeah let's give this a shot let's try i think i had 76 no's yeah okay and and that's the thing and then when you realize what exactly you're doing it comes into place and then i started tapping into the idea that look we've done so much research and now we've coming to the place where we can actually prove you're wrong right and i started to come into big players and show like i know i can prove you wrong and this is when they started to go but if you are designing something like this and everybody's going to use it where's our competitive advantage and I, then that's when I started to understand, due diligence in anything, startups, real, real estate, whatever you're investing in, has two pieces. It has science and it has art. Mm-hmm. Science is empirical, data-driven, and art is subjective. Today, the biggest issue, and I'll, I'll repeat this again, the biggest is, issue in venture capital worldwide that's hurting the founders, the accelerators, the investors, the LPs, everybody, is we have too much art mm. into this space. Mm. And my job and our, my mission and my passion is to bring science and move art into a secondary function yeah. where we can do a minimum standardized review on all companies, give viable proof that, okay, these metrics and these things are minimum and based in benchmark, but now, and now you can apply your subjective bias on top of that. Yeah. So you're not really, we're still giving every fund and chance to you know, take their sure. secret sauce and advantage, but we think that the limited partners who would fund the funds and, and those people they don't have enough experience to know who, what their general partners are doing right and wrong. That's why the funds exist in the first place. That's what the so they can do whatever they want. And a lot of investors out there are like, so you're going to be creating regulation for us. And I, we didn't even know. And until a few months ago, I didn't realize we're building reg tech, yeah, not fintech. Yeah. We're building a regulation. Yeah. And I'm, uh, that's what I want to do. I'm passionately regulating the venture capital space because I've seen too many unethical practices, yeah. too much nepotism, yeah. too much closed-door things that I firmly believe it's hurting our system. The moment we can bring in more founders from different backgrounds and things, we're not going to have the same social networks like pop up, you know, another TikTok, another thing. We're going to start to have other ideas from different cultures, different things to help humanity. Absolutely. And that, that in my mind, is where this, I think it's where the space is going in general. And it's certainly where I try to focus my energy. 
I think we're we're running out of time, right? And all the innovations kind of come from the startup world. Like that's that's how we change things. That's ultimately where most of the innovation comes from. It's not necessarily coming from big corporations. They're the ones who will adopt it eventually, um, but it needs to come from outside. And I think there's too much focus on creating things that don't really do anyone any favors, um, whether it's a, whether it's an app or whatever. Like there's not enough focus on science-based startups um, across numerous... I mean, look at what just happened to the biotech, biotech space, right? The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is absolutely catastrophic. That should never have happened. It should yeah. never have happened. Um, and now we've got biotech companies around the world who are like literally dropping like flies, choking, dying, because they haven't been able to get to the right resources. Um, and, and then the amount of capital to add to, to help them to grow, which is really sad. Um, I think there needs to be more of a focus on things like that that are actually will actually have the potential to help the world in a big way, um, and that can come from a wide variety of different industries. But it's got to it's got to go that way. Um, this is one of those industries that's not. I wouldn't say it, it's actually very affected by the economic cycles of of the global capitalism, right? Like um, when we are in recessionary periods, inflationary periods, venture capital is not recession proof, mm. right? Like some industries are like essential and so yeah. venture capital is a little bit, or is at least seen as not recession proof. And it's like when there are uh, low times, that's when you're not taking risks in, in companies and innovation, you're going back to fundamentals, right? What I'm trying to change the whole perception of the ecosystem is if you bring data and you bring organization into this and standardization, even in down markets, it's just an opportunity. It, it's an arbitrage opportunity, well, it right? And it should be, but it's not because of the, the fact it's not standardized. If you look at some of the most successful investors in history, they've made probably their best bets and had the biggest impact when markets are down. Like there's the old adage, when, blood on, when there's blood on the streets, it's a time to invest. And I think in the venture space, not enough. I think it, it automatically dries up because people are, they become very risk averse and they're like, okay, we're not going to invest now. We're just going to wait till the markets are better. But if we had more of a data-driven approach, as you talked about, um, that wouldn't necessarily need to happen. We wouldn't see things happen like necessarily the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank um, and then that the, the knock-on impact that had particularly in the biotech industry. Um, and the, the lack of finance has been particularly in that space this year as a highlight um, or a low light, if you like. Um, so things like that shouldn't happen because the importance of what these industries are doing for the world, the potential they have to really impact things. So yeah, I think like the, the more you can mitigate risk within downtimes and still keep capital flowing with your platform, the, the better it's going to be. Uh, I, th I presume that's one of the objectives as well. Yeah, and it's important to like you know like we talk about in the last recession, two thousand seven eight, the financial crisis. A lot of the top companies came out of that: Uber, Airbnb, right? Yeah. And the thing is, the reason for uh, those times being great to start companies, but also low funding, the good companies because you see when the markets are low across the board, people are getting laid off, uh, salaries are starting to drop in terms of the, um, you know, what talent you need to build a business. Yeah. And it becomes more attractive for a smaller business that doesn't have 
tons of capital infrastructure in place to attract this kind of talent that's needed to do well. And at that time, in this these like questionable periods, a lot of businesses and a lot of decision makers start to think outside the box, mm-hmm. right? They're like, oh, my, you know, my job or my career is on the line. I got to figure out creative ways to, yeah. to do the lower cost, improve outputs. And that's all what startups and small business innovation is about, right? It's, it's trying to disrupt and improve ecosystems. But in good times, sometimes people over like don't really pay attention. They're like, oh, everything's going well. You know, that old, old adage that, you know, nobody got fired for hiring IBM, right? Like that, that kind of idea. But the thing is, when you get into a time which things are more tremulous, some large organizations stick to their fundamental vendors and clients, but people mid to, to, to consumers start to be creative and say, what else is out there that, that we can action on, right? So on that side, but on, on the funding side, there's a whole other problem. Okay, and let me, for a lot of people who don't understand how money flows, let me explain it a little bit. So usually in, in venture capital, in startups, the money is flowing from a source at the top and it's going through multiple layers. So the immediate investor that puts them directly into a deal might be an angel or might be a venture capitalist. They usually, the, the venture capitalist gets money from raising capital from limited partners. These limited partners could be other high net worth individuals, but also at the higher levels, they're institutions like pension funds, um, hedge funds. All of these groups are handling our money, our pensions, our groups, and their job is to improve and increase that that base. So it's making money. So when we retire, we have more than we've contributed to it, right? And so that needs to be invested somewhere. And mostly there's traditional assets like stocks and bonds. But they are also they also play with different asset classes, including venture, because there's a risk to a reward ratio that they want to play with, right? So that money has to be allocated and they have to make those investments in the company. What happens during these recessionary periods is let's take a family office who would normally make investments. A family office is a rich family, took all their money from whatever wealth, either generational or they made it off an exit or a business, and they put it into a into a family office which acts like a corporation or a tax haven to make investments. Now that in that body or that vehicle is now making an investment, but it has like a different percentage of its assets under management or its amount of money it has. Let's say it has a hundred million. Maybe eighty million will go into real estate. Maybe fifteen million will go into st- public stocks and bonds and tre- treasury bills. Then you'll have like five percent that might be split up into venture capital, private equity, and everyone has a different number and ratio. But what is very key is that a lot of the money is usually deployed. Sitting on that cash mix is not good for anybody. So when you come to these kind of periods, what happens is I'm a VC fund. I've gone to a family office. My fund is 50 million. I've told they told me they'll give me 10. They don't give it to me right away. They keep it and they give us a management fee, which is go and do the homework, get your office, your salaries, your staff, do all the operational stuff with the management fees. Start looking at deals. Start doing the due diligence. Get them to the point where you believe you want to get in on this. Then do a capital call of that 10 million for it, right? So let's just say that investment's 1 million and we need to do a capital call. What these limited partners mostly will do is if they've got the money on hand, they'll wire it. Majority of the time they don't, it's in the market. So do one of two things, either go liquidate, like go sell some stuff, or they go to a bank, uh, biggest was Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and say, I'm using my assets as, as a collateral, we need to do this one million, I have 100 million as this total, or 50 million as this total asset, can you lend me one million at an interest rate so I can make this capital call? And then we can either pay it back from a future exit or future sale of a security, or we are going to just pay the interest and, and let it go. In down market, I mean, in times when the interest rates are low and the monetary policy is low, they do this all the time. 
when recessionary periods come and the Bank of Canada or the World Banks and everything is starting hiking up interest rates, the cost of borrowing that money is really hard. So they tell the funds, stop investing right now. We don't have assets for you. We don't have money. Even though you might find great startups that are amazing, next year, when, when the interest rates go down, we'll have, be able to do that. It's not their fault. It's, it's the function of, the, of our monetary policy and our financial systems, right? So founders have to understand when it's a founder's market and when it's an investor's market, like in real estate where it's a buyer's and seller's market, right? And so because of these con constraints, we are created this bottleneck where some, not every, first of all, not every startup can get funded. There's not enough money in the world to do that. So even the ones that do normally fit in time periods that should potentially get funded may not in this, these time periods. And so that's why they, they say in this period, startups should be camels. Yes. You're going through a desert, you have very little water, you want to conserve it, preserve it, come to the end when you get out of the, as the oasis of the desert, then turn yourself and transform into something different, right? This is a really important thing for all sides of the ecosystem to know. And it's not very, uh, this education around this is not very wildly known. And a lot of founders are struggling right now, like you said, the biotech and stuff, because debt with their Silicon Valley bank, not lending to these guys right now. And they doesn't have enough um, assets to make these investments, right? Into these, into these companies. So they either wind down or they you know, lower their burn rate and keep growing until they, they can. It's, here's a massive argument I've had with people, and it's, it's a world argument. How fast should we innovate as a humanity? Like, we could take all our money and just spend it in innovation, keep improving the ecosystem, but are, is the society and whatever that's being innovated, is the world ready for that? Before, we didn't ask this question. Now we're asking with ChatGPT, blockchain, the world isn't always ready for these uh, new technologies. You just explained why. Because if you invest or if you continue to invest all your money in innovation, um, it, when it's a founder's market, when it quickly turns the other way, you can't keep doing that. No. You need to have banked something to get you through the harder times. Correct. Um, so yeah, I mean, some guidance for founders in that as well, um, which is, I, I think, yeah, it's interesting. Do you work with founders in that sense? Oh, 100%, all yeah. the time, because like we, part of our scoring system not only helps the investors, yeah. but we're starting to open up an Equifax where companies can assess themselves to see if they're ready right. to fundraise. Right. So we have lots of people like assessing, and we know benchmarks of who's getting funding right now, what, how much money they have, how much revenue, traction, and we yeah. know the difference, and it's changing in the recessionary periods. Yeah. People are becoming less lenient yeah. and more fundamentals, right? So the, the thing is, the guidance for founders is lowering burn as much as possible, you try to stick to numbers, and if you're pre-revenue, pre-thing, it's the concept pilots. of going back Even to ask people, they're really, like, really the value of what you're doing. Get clients, be creative with pilots. Even ask people, they really, if, if you're solving a real need and the, com the, com the customer's ready to pay advance yeah. a year or six months, why do you need to go funding? Yeah. Get a bunch of customers to do that. It's not easy for any found, like every founder to do this. But this is my tips during a recessionary period. Focus on fundamentals. Focus on being able to go and build those relationships for the future. Lower your burn. Become a camel. Get through this period. Because the moment the dry powder, and remember, when you're not funding, what it's called, it's called dry powder. It's sitting waiting to be allocated to the, to the investor, right? Oh, so the, to the startup. We, are, we have a lot. We have about, I believe, um, 17 billion right now in dry powder sitting in Canada waiting to invest, that are waiting at all the venture funds that the LPs are like, don't, don't call it yet, right? And in, the, in, the, in North America, it's about 73 billion, okay, as of June last year when we did the research. So like, at some point, the floodgates will open. 
Okay, and this is this is temporary. So when you start seeing because it's already been committed, it's already it has to go out. It has to go out, and the LPs are waiting for interest rates to go down and things. So like you know, I I can't give you a prediction, but let's say sometime in twenty twenty four, March to July, March to August, a year from now, the interest rates will start to come down, the floodgates will open, and deals will start to go back in. Your job as a founder right now is figure out every way to survive until that time period. When that opens up, the people who are still around will get the first initial flood that comes out of the gates. Yeah, yeah. You touched on dry powder in, in, in the Canadian ecosystem there. It was a, probably a good segue to talk about the ecosystem in Toronto. When I moved here a few months ago, I didn't know that much about the Canadian ecosystem. I've learned a lot since I've been here, um, which you've been instrumental in, in a lot of. Um, like how do you how do you see the startup ecosystem in Toronto in Canada in general? Like where are the main focus areas? Where are the hot points? Where where is it strong here? Um, what do investors like here? Um, how does it differ from the rest of the world? And, and how closely tied is it to the US? Um, how do you see like international flow of of capital in and out of Canada as well, or is it quite? A closed off ecosystem still yeah it's actually an amazing ecosystem a lot of things are changing but see when I, what i have to understand is when i traveled all over the world i started mapping out ecosystems and i came up with three different characteristics of how ecosystems differ the first one is where money comes from where's the dominant players that provide capital for that ecosystem number two is how conservative are the investors in that ecosystem right. are they willing to take a risk how risk averse are they right and the last one is what are the um the downstream uh, M&A, IPO, like the exits. Yeah. How strong is the exit market in that yeah. ecosystem, right? These are the three characteristics that define every ecosystem. Yeah. What I found is that in the first one, which is let's call where money flows from, there are about four or five different places. Um, in the US, and majority of capitalism strong ecosystems, mm. money usually comes from the private sector, from private equity, from previous systems. In countries like Canada, where it's a little bit more socialistic, a little bit more um, government focus, it comes from government. It comes trickling down through government funds and budgets and stuff like that. In Europe, a lot of corporate comes from corporate innovation enterprises yeah. that put in money. Around the world, different ecosystems differ. Um, for another one, like Tel Aviv in Israel, comes a lot from military, mm -hmm. from their military side of funding. So when you start to map out like where the fun funding comes from, like uh, Saudi Arabia or the Middle East is often their sovereign wealth funds, yeah. right? giving to VCs as fund of funds and stuff like that. When you start to realize where money comes from, your ne the next thing is how risk averse it is. It ties in, it's not perfectly correlated, but it has a, t a strong correlation. Capitalistic markets are much more aggressive. Yeah. Um, socialistic markets are a lot more conservative, right? And, depend and the ones that are like military or other ones focused, it depends on the appetite of that industry at that time. If sure. we're in the middle of a war, they're spending a lot yeah. or ready to play. If yeah. we're not in a wartime period, it's less yeah. funding, right? So when you see that flow, you'll know what your ecosystem is and where to tap in. In Canada, we've got tons of government funding. In Toronto, uh, you can work with a lot of the accelerators that are part of universities. Yeah. The academic and uh, academic to government relationship to build the innovation yeah. is what Canada and Toronto is majorly different from many places in the world. And do you see that as, a, as, a, as an advantage or a disadvantage? Uh, it depends on which sectors, right. right? So I think overall, like it's hard to get capital in Canada because people are so conservative in, in nature sure. that they're ready to put this it in. This is the nature of the financial system here. Nature of the financial system. The, the banks are there to keep everything. There's only five banks, all regulated, yeah. right? And other ecosystems are a lot more aggressive. So for, for that, certain types of industries like that are more conservative, like soft SaaS, software as a service, fintech, things that have clear-cut 
um, solutions to clear-cut uh, players are the ones that dominate, sure. right? The areas that are a little bit more liberal, you've got other things, new technologies like Web3, blockchain, crypto, those things are much more dominant in nature, right? While we do have like a great set of accelerators in Toronto, Canada, that are in different categories, you'll see where the strongest ones are and what categories that they've been successful in, and then they follow these three to four, health tech, fintech, enterprise SaaS and, SaaS and software, right? And somewhat bleeding into data and analytics, right. right? So these are the four in Toronto and like all the companies and con uh, enterprises around it that work around like BDC giving loans, Rogers and all the big corporations help support the companies coming in and out of these things, sponsor some of these accelerators. One of our client is the Rogers Cybersecure Catalyst Accelerator, which is a cybersecurity accelerator part of TMU University funded with Rogers and other groups, right? So this is how they plan and move. What I would say is that other, if you're a founder, it's really good to do research on what you're disrupting and which ecosystem is the best for you to go to. Yeah. And not everyone can move, right? It's not possible for every organization to be in the most perfect spot, but it's important within the country, you could find different hotbeds of where you could be if you can't leave and get a visa somewhere else. Sure. So like if you're, a, what, what makes Toronto really awesome is it's about an hour and a half away from a city called Waterloo. Right. Okay, and you know, Waterloo is an amazing tech city, and in history, when the internet was started, there were seven hub centers around the world that the internet was like, this is where it's gonna route from. San Francisco had one of the tech centers, Waterloo had one of those centers, and the other five are different parts in the world. I completely forget at the top of my head, but I believe, um, Tel Aviv or, or Israel might have been, had one somewhere in, in the Europe, uh, potentially London or somewhere else had one. So all of these centers, you'll notice naturally will have tech startups around it because they've been designated as the, as the birthplace of the internet or the main realms. For that reason, a lot of the companies and the access to those things are circulated around that region. So Toronto to Waterloo has a corridor, okay? So it's called, the, I, I give it the name, my personally, I call it the Quantum Corridor, okay? <laughs> People, or the Quantum Valley, okay? This is the name I'm trying to get into existence, so part of this podcast, I'm putting it out there, um, as because there's a lot of quantum computing um, work and research happening in this region. It is happening elsewhere in the world, too, but from what I saw at the University of Waterloo, what UFT uh, Engineering is doing, we know the birthplace of modern AI, the father was from the UFT. Now we're going into quantum. So some of the deep tech stuff is what really Toronto will pride itself, Waterloo and Toronto will pride itself from, and you need government funding yeah. for those. And like I said, my patent that we got was a grant from the Canadian government, yeah. right? So I wouldn't be here where I am today without that governmental support. Yeah. So it's good to understand where but, that money comes from. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to invest heavy into R&D in spaces like that before you get anywhere near a product or anywhere near something that's commercial. Exactly. So the fact that the government supports it that much is is extraordinary. Exactly. Um, and it's something that, well, it was one of the first things I learned when I got here and I was like, that's actually probably got its problems, but it's actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, Between these programs, I said IRAP, um, um, NSERC, mm -hmm. um, SHRED programs, these are all under the Innovation yeah. Minister of Canada's office, Mr. Yeah. Uh, Champagne, right? And that's what they're controlling. And like now other countries are catching up to this same model. I'm getting cons calls from like the UK embassy. They're like, oh, we're, follow we're learning about different models and we wanna go and start adding more. So people are catching up and learning in different areas, but I, I do think if I, from all the ecosystems in the world I've been to, I'm not speaking as a bias because I'm from here, Canada has one of the strongest academic to government relationships within their ecosystem. And some programs like CDL, Creative Discussion Lab, and Next Canada all tap into this and strengthen the ecosystem stronger, mm. uh, whereas other ecosystems may have other benefits. Mm. Yeah, I, well, I think 
other ecosystems like us for example like they 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 just they rely way too much on everything innovating in the private sector everything being supported through the private sector which doesn't always necessarily work it can be great for innovation in a sense in in the freedom that you have but like when you rely too much on the private sector for for like initial funding and stuff it can have its drawbacks and i think canada sets itself apart in that sense, which is very cool. Yeah, and, and like maybe it still needs a lot of work to do. Like we're, yeah, Canada's yeah. falling behind yeah. in like IP file patents, um, you know, into like a productivity and patent things. And it's, it's a function of the country being so big and having to having an aging population that's causing, you know, less innovation, which is why immigration is also booming right now yeah. for the for the bringing in thought leadership and, you know, but um, it's, it's good for certain types of companies and certain types of models. But, you know, you see a lot, a lot of people move to states afterwards. And that's that third piece of ecosystem. I talked about uh, where money flows from, how conservative people are. And the last one is exits. Where can you exit to? There are a lot more opportunities for larger exit plays in markets like the U.S. where their stock markets are very, you know, well established over many years. Not saying the TSX are not, but the size comparison is different. So as a founder, you want to maximize your returns. And if you go to a market with more capital, there's more competition to fund deals, which means that you as a founder are going to have a higher uh, valuation associated because people are clobbering to get into you. So that's why exit, you see a lot of founders build a company in Canada, take advantage of government resources, do all the stuff, and then move to the U.S. And that's not what the government wants, right? They don't want that. And so they're trying to incentivize different things. But it's not like when you're thinking about it, look at where you are as an industry. Look at the stage. And what's your exit plans? Look at ecosystems and map it out based on those three things. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, and how do you see like internet i mean you touched on immigration there like immigration very hot topic in canada you and i were at the start of visa summit a few weeks ago um talking about attracting foreign founders into canada what do you think about programs like that and i think how how do you see that tying into if it does tie in at all to like foreign investment coming into canada um maybe new funds being set up in canada um is 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 there an attraction on that side as well or does it seem to be simply focused on bringing in maybe students or young founders who are looking to create something here yeah i think that there is a small aspect of like some people can invest money and come as with their companies and get expedited to to these visas and other programs but it's not the thing to focus on it's a small piece of that the real thing is the fact that we want talent and a lot of places in the world are shutting off or like our our culture is very opposed to immigrants immigration um luckily canadian and the whole culture is about accepting and immigrants so they're very smart to tap into the system to say let's put a wide net around the world anybody has something amazing that wants to come here let's give them a chance um we still need to catch up on our you know housing infrastructure all other stuff needs to be catch up to the amount of immigrants coming in but the fact that that people are willing to come to canada with their businesses is not very strong with other countries like i see i have asked other other countries have the same program start a visa mm-hmm. not the same name on various different rules but they're not as attractive mm. you know canada is, is seen as one of those golden places to be great work-life balance um great uh, ethics so a lot of people want to move their families to here and i'm very happy the government's taking advantage of it and i'm very proud because we need more of these people here to build the ecosystem and other countries may not be as easy to get into a- even the u.s like there is you know, I've lived in the U.S. There is underlying racism. There's underlying things that doesn't like it happens here, but very 
small. So people who come can acclimatize and get situated here much better than in other places. Yeah. And that's a competitive advantage Canada has going for it. We talk about subjective bias, the immigration system in America. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> like there's some of the, I mean, I was chatting to a couple of founders the other night about how that like they're trying to get into Y Combinator and they've been accepted into Y Combinator. They're like, well, I come to New York and they can't get, they can't get visas. It's like, it's in a, like because, because what, maybe they have an Iranian name or they have like, you know, it's just all this shit that happens. It's like, it's absurd. Canada, I think, is a lot better in that sense than the US is. Like, yeah, and, and I think that's helping my business so much as I go around the world and, I'm, and they, you know, we talk to people and funds and I'm like, oh, we're setting up a global standardization to go, oh, you're, you're a U.S. company. I'm like, no, not, not necessarily. We do have a lot of influence in the U.S. We have, we have offices, we have people there, but we're a Canadian company. And that's when their eyes open up like, OK, you know what, like we're a little bit more trusting that, you know, if you're going to be playing regulation and you're going to be the playing, you know, guard. A country like Sweden, Switzerland, Canada are much. We're much more comfortable playing that global role of a country coming, a company coming out of those countries yeah. than anywhere else, and it works to our favor, right? So, every area has a has a benefit or competitive advantage. Everyone has the grass is green for some reason elsewhere. As humans, as businesses, we just have to align our green with where we want to go. Mm. Yeah. So. What are your like? What are your long term plans um, for startup fuel? Like, I know you you want to make this into, or it's already becoming a global initiative, global collaborative effort. Um, where do you see it going as a, as an organization? Um, you know, the, I think in many ways the sky's the limit. But where like where do you personally want to get it to? And what are your long term goals in your career? So, so like, I mean, I wrote this white paper about 13 years ago in my in my venture capital class and everything has been still marching forward from that day is for me to create a startup an online startup stock market where anybody can list themselves and there's liquid assets the ability for investors to share and just an ethical place for people to build great ideas i want the ability for a single mom in africa to open up my our app or our website to be able to build run their business get tips and advice and become successful or at least to be able to provide for their family and that i think the power of what we're doing. It takes years. I'm, like I said, 13 years in, six years into this business, and I'll still go on. And I will do this till, till the day I die. And what I'll help to hope to accomplish is to spread entrepreneurship through education and through data to everybody. Our next steps is to become a global S&P and Moody's or Equifax for every different country because we're seeing a lot of conflict of interest between sharing deals between borders right now and we think it should be more collaborative than that so for me opening an office in Europe um, this year and in, in India and in Bangalore this in January this year is my next targets but opening an office in every continent and one day in every tech city saying like this is the single source of truth if you're gonna get a deal done let them take a first stab at it and give some benchmarks and ratings so we can make better decisions on that. That's what we're moving towards. And we're hoping um, this attracts more people who've thought the venture space is too risky to then come in. And if we can do that, if we can bring retail investors, everyday people to have a, a, an app which has all their yeah. startup investments yeah. on it, like you have a, you know, in like a Wealthsimple or something else, and it's got people you're tracking, you can sell it, it's unheard of. And it took, it takes what I'm doing. It takes years of first fine-tuning due diligence, connecting into financial document bank accounts, pulling it out, benchmarking to create this system to get worldwide jurisdictional access from securities commissions and exchanges to do this. And I just set my life and dedicated to do this because somebody needs to. And I think 
you know, I, I believe, humbly speaking, my whole life's work, career, and passion is all leading to this, and I'm the quintessential founder market fit for this type of company. I think so as well, and I commend you seriously for what you're, do- what you're doing and what you've done so far. Look forward to helping you in any way I can going forward and collaborating as much as possible. Um, to continue this conversation or for anybody to look you up, where can, where can they find you? So definitely check out startupfuel.com mm-hmm. to go in. If you're a company yourself or an investor, you can hit the Startup Network. Go register yourself on our LinkedIn type platform. Um, you can go in and start looking at resources. Um, if you're an investor looking, check out our due diligence tools, our technologies, our products, our software. Um, we also are more making more publicly known. We've de- designed a new GPT engine called Diligent GPT that automatically goes into documents and creates a f- fantastic tear sheets and memos. Take a look at that. But for me personally, you can contact me at any point at ash at startupfield.com. Um, come check out like our Startup Legends podcast on Spotify, everywhere it is, and reach out. I'm here to learn. So I will never say no. I'll even founder start your company day one, wants some advice and tips. I'm here because I planted those seeds many years ago. Some of those founders listened, came back to me a year later from the advice. We helped them get some funding. And I've just built pipelines of just being good for everybody. So if you want to reach out to me, talk, build relationships, this is not easy for one person or one group to tackle. We need, we need a village. Yes, it do. takes a village to build a system where it's fair. And I'm looking for people who want to be part of this village. Wonderful. All right, sir. It was very good to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. And um, we'll catch up with you next time on the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. And like I said, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be, be here. You've been a gem since we've met here, Chris. And I'm excited to, to expand our friendship and our working relationship together. Likewise,